Second Samuel. Meet me in the book of Second Samuel, chapter seven. And in due time, we'll be opening up and reading from there. Second Samuel, chapter seven, in the blue Bible in the chair in front of you. That's page two hundred and fifty-nine. That's where we'll be at in just a moment. I want to open up in prayer, and then we're going to dive into the Word together this morning. Father, I just praise you, Lord, for, um, man, what a, what a sweet time we've had of worship already this morning. God, I, I thank you for our worship team, and just for the way that they prepared for today, and for your Holy Spirit for working, God. I thank you that our Brook kids are right now getting ready to learn from your Word, the life-giving truths, God, the eternal truths of the Bible. God, I thank you for our church family and for the, uh, the unity we share, Lord, because of Jesus. And so, Father, we just ask, God, that you would do and continue to do work and work and work in our lives and in this community of the northwest side of Chicago. Uh, bless the local churches in our community, Lord. We pray that they would thrive, that they would grow, that they would prosper, Lord, um, in reaching people and in making disciples. Because that's the, that's the job you gave us. And I pray that we would do the same here at the Brook. Lord, we don't want to build our own little tribe or our, our, our minuscule little kingdom. We want, we want to be about your word. So, Lord, I pray you'd meet us. God, as I, as I open the word, let me be a mouthpiece for you, God. Father, I pray that you would speak through me with power and passion, with persuasion. And, Lord, I pray that our ears would be the kinds that hear and that our eyes would be the kinds that see. Lord, that you want to show us and cause us to hear. Although we love you, and we pray you would uh, work in the name of Jesus. Amen. <clears throat> well, good morning. I'm excited to dive into scriptures. Before we do that, I want to ask you, have you ever considered the thought that maybe your life is an answer to someone else's prayers? Have you ever considered the fact that your life may be the answer to prayer from someone who prayed a prayer a hundred years ago? Two hundred years ago? You ever wonder the house that you live in, perhaps when it was first built, that maybe the person who first lived there prayed and asked that the people who would live here for generations would fear Jesus? Maybe someone prayed with one of your ancestors, saying that asking God that seeds of the good news of Jesus would be planted, and your life is the life that it began to take root? I mean, you ever thought about those kind of things? Because if you're like me, I've prayed prayers like that for those after me. But what it is to think that maybe someone before me had prayed those kinds of prayers. Have you ever considered from where God has brought you? Maybe where your life was before Jesus, if you know him. you ever considered just taking the time to recount all that God's done for you? Have you ever thought about what he's going to do in the generations after you because of you? Sometimes we just need to think of life a little bit differently. To zoom out, to zoom in, to take our focus off of me and not assume that I am the climax of the historical timeline. See, God is not just one or two or three steps ahead of you, family. He's at the finish line when the start gun sounds. He knows what's going to take place. He knows the trajectory of your life. He knows where your life stands and the trajectory of those before you. God's in control, and nothing takes him by surprise. 
And sometimes when we think God's done, God's like, I'm just warming up. Now, the truth is God doesn't need a warm-up. He actually comes in top, doesn't he? But it's important for us to think, what has God done in our lives? If you're here today and you have yet to put your faith in Jesus Christ, I want you to know that you're here today because God's answered our prayers. We prayed that God would bring you. Man, we didn't know you by name, but we prayed and we prayed and we prayed that God would bring people here to the brook who don't know him so they could come to know Jesus. You see, God is always answering prayers, doing work. And I want us to be able to have the kind of eyes that see what God is doing. God has done so much, but in many ways, he's just getting started. We've been working through the series of a life of a man named David who became the king of Israel, of God's people. And I was coming to the passage we're going to look at today, and as I was studying it, some commentators made this bold statement, and it took me by by surprise, if I'm honest. They said, this chapter we're about to study today is arguably the most important chapter in the entire Old Testament of Scriptures. And I was like, that's pretty mind-blowing. It's 39 books in the Old Testament, hundreds of Uh, thousands of pages, depending on your Bible font. The Old Testament is vast. It covers thousands of years. And for someone to say, when I come to 2 Samuel chapter 7, this might be the most important. It perked up my ears and my eyes, and I began to dig and to study. And what I came to see is that King David is a guy who acts and functions a lot like you and I do sometimes, where we don't necessarily realize that God still has more in store for us. He has still work to do, and we're part of his grand timeline. Now, as we've talked about the story in the life of David, we found early on that he was a mere shepherd boy. His dad, Jesse, lived in a city called Bethlehem. He was a very ordinary person, like we are. And yet God sent this prophet Samuel to go to David and anoint him, though he was just a teenager, anoint him with oil to set him apart to become the next king of Israel. He was not of kingly stock. He had no kingly backgrounds, but God's like, I got a plan for you. You guys look at the outward appearance, but what does God do? He looks at the heart. And so from that point forward, David gets on the map. The next chapter, he slays Goliath. And then he's getting ready to become the king of Israel. His life, he's on the run in his life. He's hiding from the current king. Until that king Saul dies, David becomes the king, and he is now there establishing his kingdom. And we saw last week, he brings the Ark of the Covenant, this this, uh, symbol of God's presence, into the capital city. And David puts his feet up, and he's like, I've done it all, God. I've accomplished what you have sent me to accomplish. From there, we're going to see where our passage takes us today. Would you open your Bibles in 2 Samuel chapter 7? And would you stand if you're able to as I read God's word? It's page 259 in the blue Bibles in front of you. We do want you to keep that Bible if you don't own one. We want you to have God's word in your hands. God speaks, family. He is speaking. He is talking to us. And he's got a word for us this morning. Here's what he says in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Now when the king, that's David, lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest. Can you say rest? He'd given him rest from all his surrounding enemies. 
Basically, David's got his feet up in his palace like, hey, we've, we've accomplished it. The king said to Nathan the prophet, see now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, go do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. He said, go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I've been moving, from a, uh, moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people of Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus you should say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I've been with you wherever you went and cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you what? Rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before you. In verse 16, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever. He say forever? Forever before me. Your throne shall be established. How long? Forever. In accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. This is God's word. You may be seated, family. The chapter begins with David basically saying, I've got rest from all my enemies. Basically, all the primary threats to his reign as king have been abated. They have been silenced. They defeated the, the neighboring nations, and now their king, David's kingdom is established. There is peace in the land. But David says, I live in a house of cedar. Cedar is the top wood in the land. It is the kind of crib that anybody wanted in Israel. In fact, when Erica and I were in Israel this past January, we went to the city of David, and we could see the ruins of David's palace and government buildings. It would have been an impressive sight, the kind of place that people wanted to live in, 
You know when you drive like Winneka, you know? Or Kenilworth, you know, he's like, that's a nice crib, right? This, this is what David's house was like. But David felt something difficult in his soul. Because as he sat in his house, he began to really think, why is it okay for me to live in this mansion and the Ark of the Covenant, the very symbol of God's presence, is in a tent? Now, the tent he's referring to is what's called the tabernacle. It's what Moses and God's people set up whenever they parked in a particular place. And that's where worship happened. The tent was mobile. And David's like, hey, we are establishing a kingdom, a city. Let's do away with this mobile tent and establish a more permanent residency for God's ark. And so David goes to Nathan, the prophet, it says in verse 2. He tells him this thing. And Nathan says in verse 3, go do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. You see, David wanted to build God a temple. It's, it's what he wanted. Temples were permanent, right? They symbolized the presence of God. And so David asks to build this house. It's interesting. The word house shows up 15 times in this chapter with different kinds of meanings. It, it's fascinating the way the, the writer to 2 Samuel says this. <clears throat> Sometimes a house refers to David's family. He's like, what is my house, God? Or he says, God, I want to build you a house. He's not talking about family. He's talking about a temple. And David's like, but I live in a house of cedar. He's talking about a home. And a God later on going to tell him, I'm going to build you a house, referring to a dynasty. But the word house is interchanged here for emphasis. David wants to build a temple. Nathan says, go and do it. Now notice, Nathan doesn't ask God. He's just functioning off of wisdom here. He's just saying, hey, it seems right. You're king. Things are peaceful. The time seems right. Go for it, David. I know you're trying to honor God. In fact, Psalm 132 tells us that David put it in his heart to build God this temple. The psalmist says in Psalm 132, verses 1 through 5, Remember, O Lord, in David's favor all the hardship he endured and how he swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob, I will not enter my house or get into my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord. David was basically like, God, I am so discontent with the fact that I've got a house, but you don't. That I'm going to do everything in my power to build one for you, God. And David had this desire. Nathan knew the desire was pure. And he said, go for it. Do it. But then we see in verse 4 that God comes to Nathan at night. And God says in so many words, don't. Don't do it. Tell David, no. He says, ultimately, in verses 7, he says, I've never asked anyone else before you to build me a house of all the leaders. So therefore, I, I don't want you to build me one. Not, not now. It's not the right time. I find this to be a really interesting display of conversation here. It's kind of a, a side note, but I think it's worth stating. You see, David has this desire he brings aside the prophet of God, a man who he knew was a godly man, basically runs this by him, gets counsel, and decides to proceed. David asks for godly counsel. And the godly counsel says, I think this is what God wants. Gives him a thumbs up, and that night God's like, no, that's not what I want. 
And so what Nathan does, he goes back to David saying, I actually pumped the brakes. God came to me last night and said, don't do it. What I find interesting here is the importance of godly counsel. You see, what's fascinating is that the godly counsel, according to his own wisdom, said, this sounds like a good plan. But when it's godly counsel, they keep their ears open for what God has to say. And so even though the counsel initially was actually wrong, God corrected it, and Nathan was humble enough to say, hey, actually, David, I was wrong. This is actually what God is saying. You see, in life in general, again, this is a side note, but it's important. We have to surround our si ourselves with godly, mature counsel who we can run things by, who can give us wisdom, and then themselves realize if they're ever wrong, they circle back and say, hey, actually, this is what God is showing me from his word from wherever else. We need godly counsel in our lives. You know, we, we don't have surround sound system in our, in our house. I'm just not, I'm not TV bougie like that. We did try it once. I got some hand-me-down speakers, and, and you know, the, the beauty of surround sound is you get to hear different aspects of a movie. Isn't that true? You get to appreciate the different dynamics that are taking place. But when you have a whack sound system like we had, the surround sound actually was more difficult. You know, the, the treble was too high, the bass was too much, and things got muffled out, and it became static. And this is so true, depending how we surround ourselves. But ask yourself, what's the surround system in your life? Are they the kind of voices that make God's will muddier, more static-like? Or are they the kind of voices that make God's will clearer? David had godly counsel. The kind of counsel that is God-focused, that is Bible-driven, that is God-glorifying, that is Jesus-centered, and that tells the truth, even if it hurt. And I wonder what Nathan must have thought, because Nathan knew David had it in his heart to build this house. David longed to do it. David went so far, as Psalm 132 says, to say, I'm not even going to go to my own bed anymore until I build a house for God. But Nathan was willing to hurt David's feelings because that's what God said was the truth. What do you do when you're disappointed? What do you do when God tells you no when you thought the answer was yes? Do you proceed and push it or do you hold off? I heard one person say that disappointments are God's appointments. That's pretty wild, isn't it? Disappointments are God's, God's appointments. Because in those things, God is working something. And in David's case, God needed to get through to him something important. And it ultimately was this. That God's like, David, I've done a lot for you. And yes, you are established safely. But David, you need to know something about me. I'm just warming up when it comes to your life. God tells David to pump the brakes. And then he says in verse 8, Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, he tells Nathan, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people, and I have been with you wherever you went. And I cut off your enemies. It's like God is telling David this, Look, David, you want to do something for me, but let me remind you first what I've done for you. Let me remind you what's going on. First and foremost, God wants David to know that God doesn't need David. 
God doesn't need anything. In fact, the Bible says that God is self-sufficient. In theological terms, they use this phrase in Latin, aseity. He is of himself, which means he needs nothing else. He is the eternal triune God. I mean, God is love, isn't he? The Bible says that. Can you be loved if you're by yourself with no one else ever in your life? There's, there's no way you can show love, receive love, give love. But God is a triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. And in eternity past, before he spoke this world into existence, God was, is love and was love. And he lacked nothing in himself. God never has been stuck. No one came to God's rescue. God has never been in a bind, in a pinch, or needed someone to bail him out. God never asked for help because he'd never been in a situation to need it. God has community in himself, joy in himself, and honor in himself. And say, so why do the angels worship him? Is it because he needs praise? Remember, the angels are created beings. God didn't create them because he was lacking something in eternity past. He created the angels to praise him, to give the angels the pleasure and privilege of praising him. Nothing else did God need. He needed nothing. And surely, he didn't need a house. After all, the Bible says that the heaven is his throne room and the earth is his footstool. God's like, you're going to build me a building? I put my feet up on this planet after a long day's work. And God's like, furthermore, David, I want to show you some things. I want to remind you what I've done for you. I took you when you were a mere shepherd. In the same way God tells you, I took you when you were what? Where were you when God took you? Were you a legalist? Were you living reckless? Were you living in poverty or maybe in wealth, in abuse, in anger, in addiction? I don't know where you were at when God took you, but if you put your faith in Jesus and you've been given a new life, you've been resurrected, God took you from somewhere. And as with David, he took David from this place to do something else. And in David's case, it was to become a king. God's like, I took you from being a shepherd to become a king. And I gave you all your enemies into your hands. That's what I've done for you, David. But like I said, I'm just warming up because I'm also going to do more. And this is why 2 Samuel 7 is arguably the most important chapter in the Old Testament. Because God goes on to tell him in verse 11, From the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, is that I will give you rest from all your enemies Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you, what? A house. David, you feel like you've got to make me a house? Actually, it's in my plan to build you one. And David's got some figuring out to do here. Because he's like, I already live in a house of cedar, and there's nothing like it. What kind of house is God telling David he's going to build for him? Well, he goes on telling him in verse 12. When your days are fulfilled, David, and you lie down with your fathers, when the game is over in your life, David, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, one of your descendants, and I will establish his kingdom. 
He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. See, what God is saying here to David is, one of your ancestors will build me my house. And it's fascinating because after David dies, you know who becomes king after him? His son, who's by the name of Solomon. And what is Solomon's greatest achievement? He built the temple. He built the temple. A glorious and marvelous place of worship. And so God is reminding David here, I'm going to set up one after you. He's going to be the one to build this temple for me. And in verse 14, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And what that means is, it goes on, when he commits iniquity, when he sins, I'm going to discipline him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the sons of men. This is what God does to his children that go astray. He disciplines to bring them back. And God's like, I'm going to raise up your son, which is undoubtedly Solomon in some sense, and I'm going to establish him. And when he sins, I'm going to discipline him to bring him back. And he says in verse 15, But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before you. And your house, he tells David, and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me, and your throne shall be established forever. You see, let me summarize it this way. God tells David, one of your offspring from your own body will have the kingdom after you, and he will build me a temple, a temple, and I will establish his throne. I will be like a father to him, and I will discipline him when he sins. And so I read that, and I'm thinking, David must be excited. One of my sons is going to take the baton. But as I read this, like you, you're like, something here feels like it's missing. You see, because Solomon did build a temple, but that temple got destroyed in 586 B.C. Solomon's kingdom was established, but it divided after he died. Solomon was a son to God, but he actually rebelled at the end of his life. Solomon was disciplined by God, but he never repented. Solomon was there as the one after David, but we read this like something's missing. See, If Solomon was not the one to ultimately fulfill these words, who then would that be? You see, God tells David that I will establish your kingdom for how long? Forever. If you go to Israel today, you're not going to find a palace, and you surely will not find a king. In fact, the last king of Israel was Zedekiah, taken away to Babylon and executed. No, it's not that. Who would be the one to come and have an eternal kingdom? Family, let me ask you, what's his name? See, I know it's only November, but it might as well be Christmas. Because we got to talk about David's son. See, David had a son who would have a son who would have a son, capital S. And what's his name? You see, in Isaiah chapter 9, these very words are spoken. For to us a child is born. To us a what? Son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. 
You see, at the increase of his government and of his peace, there will be no end. And then Isaiah says, on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it. You see, God's saying, there's one coming after David, and yes, Solomon's going to fulfill some of it, but Solomon is not the one you got to look for. To you, a child will be given, a son will be given, and he will be these things. What's his name, family? In Luke chapter 1, the angel of the Lord comes to Mary and says, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name. What, family? Oh, no, that is horrible. You will call his name Jesus. You got to say that with a little more flavor here, fam. What's his name? Jesus. He will be great, the angel says, and he will be called Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of who? His father, who? David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob for how long? Forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. You will not find a palace with a king in Israel, but that does not mean that there is a palace without a king. There is a king, and he does reign, and he will reign forever. And this will happen because God told David it would. And his name is Jesus. Because unlike Solomon, Jesus has a kingdom that will not be divided, but will reign in righteousness. Unlike Solomon, Jesus' temple might be destroyed, but he would raise it up in three days. See, there is one who is called the Son of God because he actually was the Son of God. There was one who would receive stripes and lashes, but not because of his own sin, but because of the sins of others. And there was one who said in Matthew 12, something greater than Solomon is here. And what's his name? It ain't Christmas, but it might as well be. You see, God sent Jesus Christ, who is God in human flesh, born of a virgin, Mary, and he lived for 30 years, and after 33 years was crucified. But he would reign in righteousness because he conquered death and is on the throne even now. And so when we read these words, and we see in verse 16, your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. David is thinking big time here, family. What's remarkable is David's response seems like he has begun to connect the dots. He says here in verse 18, Who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house? What's my family? that you would say such things about me. Who am I? You see, David is understanding something here in his promise to establish his kingdom forever. Because David actually is the answer to other people's prayers. God didn't start with David. You see, when David was anointed by Samuel, that's not when God began things. That's not when God figured out how to figure this out. You see, if we go to the book of Genesis... And we go to the Garden of Eden. And when Adam and Eve take of the fruit and sin enters the world, God's like, it ain't done yet. I'm actually just warming up. Because from Eve will come one who would strike the serpent in the head. 
And then you fast forward to the life of Abraham. God tells Abraham, you know, Abraham, that promise I made will go through one of your descendants. And then it goes to Isaac, and then to Jacob, and the promises go on. And then we get this crazy story about this woman named Ruth who meets this man named Boaz. They get married, have a kid named Obed, who then has a kid named Jesse, who then has a kid named David. See, David, it didn't start with him. The promises that God was communicating to David were from the first promises God ever communicated to humanity. That God would find a way to make it right. And David is here undoubtedly saying, I'm in this line of promises, God? I mean, like, it's my descendant who will be the Messiah to crush Satan and defeat our enemies? My descendant? David goes on in verse 22, Therefore you are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you, and there is no God besides you. David thought things were done. He had his feet up in his palace. He's ready to build God a house because he's got nothing else to do. And God's like, I'm still building your house, David. You see, family, without this promise, you and I have no forgiveness of sins. If Solomon was the answer, we'd be all in a pretty bad spot. But Jesus is the answer to our sin because he promised, God promised to do it for David. David says in verse 26, and your name will be magnified forever, and yes it will. Lord of hosts is God over Israel, and the house of your servant David will be established before you. For you, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, have made this revelation to your servant, saying, I will build you a house, a dynasty, a kingdom. Therefore your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. And now, O Lord God, you are God, and your words are true, and you have promised this good thing to your servant. Now, therefore, may it please you to bless the house of your servant. And he ain't talking about that cedar crib. Bless my ancestry, so that it may continue forever before you. For you, O Lord God, have spoken. And with your blessing shall the house of your servant be blessed forever. See, David never got to see the fulfillment of this promise. But praise the Lord, we have. Thankful for Jesus who went to the cross for us, our King, our Savior. He completed it. It's finished. But in some ways, like God's like, but I'm not done still. I'm still kind of warming up. Because Jesus did defeat death, he ascended into heaven, and the angels tell the disciples in Acts 1, the same way you saw him go up, one day you're going to see him come back. And at that point, he's going to culminate all things to himself. And we then get to walk in that. And still to us, God's like, I'm not done. I will return. And what does Jesus say? The end of the book of Revelation as the Bible closes. He says, I Jesus have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. And what does he say? I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. And John replies, he who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. 2 Samuel 7. 
is perhaps the most important chapter in the Old Testament because it reminds us that God had a plan. The plan and that promise will be communicated to David, will be fulfilled in Jesus, and ultimately fulfilled in a day yet still to come. When Jesus returns, family, it is those who put their faith in him that will be with him for eternity. If this is who you are today, if you've surrendered your life to Christ, you've been forgiven, and you are among those numbered to go with Jesus. But if that's not who you are today, as we close up, man, I want you to search your heart and just realize, man, the sin, the, the, the separation from God in your life cannot be fixed any other way. Solomon was the richest man to walk the planet. He could not buy his way. He was the wisest man ever. He couldn't figure it out. Jesus had to come and accomplish it, and he's done it for you. So as we close in prayer, family, in a moment, we want you to respond. We want you to respond with praise. We want you to respond with prayer. And if you don't know Jesus, respond by giving your life to him today. Let today be the day of salvation. Tomorrow's not promised. Yeah, let's pray. Father in heaven, we come, Lord, thanking you for this beautiful promise you gave to your servant, David. And God, I thank you, Lord, that You don't base these promises on us. This was an unconditional promise based on your constant character. And Lord, I pray that all of us, Lord, would come to really say, God, you are my God. I want to live for you. Lord, I know David knew and experienced the fullness of your joy. God, I pray that we would all know that. God, I pray for that uh, that person here today who's been at arm's length from you, God. You've been on the fence. God, maybe they know you and are just tinkering, uh, playing with, with, with rebelling for the one who just has chosen to live apart from you. God, reel them back in. Reel them back in. Let them see that Jesus is what they need. And he is the greatest joy in life. We pray this in his name. Amen. Church families, rise to our feet as we close in song. Prayer team, please come forward and make yourself available. gift from you, God, and that every breath we breathe, that we would do it for you, God, that we remember that it's you who empowers and strengthens us, God, I pray for our church family, you protect us as we go out of these walls into our mission field, Lord, and Lord, would you use us in mighty and eternal ways this week, we thank you, O Lord, and we pray this in Jesus' name, amen, I want to leave you with this blessing, the Lord bless you and keep you. Lord, make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. God bless you, church family. We'll see you all downstairs for refreshments.